Jonah was a man on the run from God's presence and God's plan. And maybe you have found yourself on that same trajectory. But the good news is the children of God will never outrun the mercy of God. As we explore the Old Testament book of Jonah together, we will be reminded that salvation belongs to the Lord and we will rejoice in the relentless mercy of God. This content is provided by Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Have you ever seen a movie or a TV show that left you maybe frustrated because the ending wasn't as good as you wanted it to be? Maybe it was even terrible. Uh, I think there's, I mean, there's blogs written about this. You can go and look at lists of movies that the vast majority of people who saw them, or TV shows, the vast majority of people saw them were were disappointed with the way that they that they end. Um, I feel that way about Lost. We invested a lot of ourselves in that show. Uh, thankfully, we were streaming it. Uh, episode after episode, the the winter after our oldest son was born, it was already completely out, so we didn't have to wait from episode to episode. But it really kind of it took a nosedive towards the end, and, and the ending was all but satisfactory to me. Now, again, I get this is subjective, right? Another show, and this will date age me here, but uh, we really got into the show How I Met Your Mother. So it's a comedy. And the main story is about this uh, gentleman who spends his, you know, the the whole time is him explaining to his children how he met their mother. And so you see all of his failed romances, you see all of his struggles in life throughout all the seasons of the show, and, and almost at the very end of the final episode, you see him in the rain on this train station, you know, train stop, and there's this girl with this yellow umbrella, an umbrella that he had taken ownership of for a while, even throughout the seasons of the show. And now she has it. It was actually hers to begin with. And and they fall in love right there. They meet each other for the very first time, and they, they fall in love. And, and uh, you expect, in my at least my es- estimation, that the credits would roll right then, but they don't. Um, instead, you find out that, yes, that had been the kid's mother, but she... She had passed away, and then he actually ends up getting together with one of the main characters of the show after that, named Robin, which is a terrible name. I'm joking. <laughs> um, that's I know. Don't make an Irish woman mad. So she, uh, become, they actually end up together. Now, in my opinion, it should have ended on the train, at the train stop. It have been the perfect ending to the show. And how much better would it be, at least in human terms, if Jonah ended after chapter 3? But it doesn't. We have Jonah chapter 4 as well. And in chapter 4, we finish with Jonah being the Jonah that we met in Jonah chapter 1. Having not learned the lessons that we had hoped that he would learn, going back to the way he was at the very, very beginning. A man forsaking greater things in exchange for lesser things. A man giving away uh, his, what God would call his great expectations for very faint expectations. And it wouldn't be so bad if it didn't remind me so much of myself. It wouldn't be so bad 
if it didn't remind me so much of you. You'll actually see the same thing happen eventually with the Ninevites as well in the book of Nahum, which we will spend time studying later this year, several generations later. That we, and one of the most human things that we do, is we trade, exchange our uh, greater things for the love of lesser things. And we see Jonah do that very thing. But there's good news even in this sad ending. And the good news is this. Even when we forsake greater things and love lesser things, the relentless mercy of God carries on invincibly. We'll see that in Jonah chapter 4. It, it, it testifies to the fact that even when we elevate our will above God's will, when we choose terrible and, ten, and sinful things or even noble and good things that aren't exactly the things that God has for us, when we choose those things over walking with God, we are making a bad trade. But even then, even when we forsake greater things and love lesser things, the relentless mercy of God carries on invincibly. So, Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Flashback one verse before, verse 10. It'd be great if it ended here. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah preaches, the people repent, and God spares Nineveh. Jonah comes out of the fish, he, he finally gets on the right track, he goes, he proclaims the truth, repentance falls, and the people of, of Nineveh repent, and God spares them. Roll credits, but no, that's not how it goes. Instead, we get verses 1 through 4, which will show us this, this phenomenon that happens in all of our lives when we don't want what God wants. Verses 1 through 3 read like this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I've heard pastors and I've read commentaries and I myself have treated this as if it's comical. Because it kind of reads comically. At face value, <laughs> I knew you were going to be merciful. <laughs> I knew you were going to be loving. So like you to show mercy, right? Like it, and it would be comical if I didn't see myself so much in Jonah. If we didn't see ourselves so much in Jonah, you see it when on first reading, I want to reach back in time and I want to grab Jonah by his face and I want to say, you're loving the wrong things, man. Remember the fish? Remember the storm? Turn your heart towards what, what God has called you to. 
Your hopes and dreams are weaker than the hopes and dreams and plans that God has for your life. But the more I read Jonah, the more I end up praying to the Holy Spirit to reach into now and grab me by the face and remind me of those same things. Want the things that God wants, not the opposite way, but in verses 1 through 4 we see when we don't want what God wants. Jonah doesn't want what God wants. That's exactly where he was in Jonah chapter 1. That's why he fled. That's why he he ran from the presence of the Lord and got on a ship away from the presence of the Lord. And now he's there again. Just two chapters later. Has he always been this way? I don't know. Has he always been a reluctant prophet? The prophecy that he gave in 2 Kings, was he reluctant to give that one as well? Or has he just now become a reluctant prophet? I don't know. Better question. Have I always been a reluctant disciple of Jesus? Have we always been reluctant followers of Jesus? You see, Jonah knows what God wants. And Jonah knows who God is. Jonah would have been a student of the Torah. He would not, as a Hebrew boy, would have had no option but to be a student of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in that he would have read who God is when he made it to Exodus chapter 34. Because as many of you know, Moses didn't go up the mountain for the Ten Commandments once. He went up twice. The first time he went up, he sits there in the, in the presence of God and God makes a covenant with the Israelites to be his people. He remakes a covenant that he'd already made with Abraham to be their God and for them to be his people. And he gives the Ten Commandments. And before uh, Moses can even get down the mountain, the people of God have already broken the covenant. They make a golden calf. They worship it. And God pours out his wrath there. But then he calls Moses back up the mountain. These are the words... That Jonah quoted, this is what he was referring to when he complained to God about who he is. Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, second time around. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And here's how he defines himself to Moses. The Lord uh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Sound familiar? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and whispered and worshipped, And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us, it should say, again, take us again as your inheritance. Jonah knew this as the character of God. He had seen it as a student of the Torah. He also knew that God's plan extended beyond the borders 
and the family of ethnic Jews. It's an even older promise. If you go into Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families, including the families of the Assyrian uh, city of Nineveh, even the Ninevites, shall be blessed. Through Abraham, the Ninevites, the Gentiles, right? The Anglo-Saxon, whatever European you are, or whatever, will be blessed. Through, the, through Abraham's descendants. But that was the rub for Jonah, by the way. You see, every Hebrew boy would have loved the first thing we read. They would have loved that God was merciful and slow to anger when it came to the Jewish people, right? They were a nation that existed as God's people because God was merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They would have appreciated that. But where Jonah got hung up was that God was going to be that very same God to the nations. You see, at best, or at worst, <laughs> Jonah was a racist. Call a spade a spade. At best, he was a nationalist. So consumed with ethnic Jews that he maybe he didn't hate, but he didn't think as well of or want the same benefits for those outside of his, of his people. But yet God's merciful not only with the Ninevites, but he's merciful with him. But Jonah wanted an orange leaf God. He wanted a, a, a buffet Yahweh. He wanted to be able to pick and choose who God was and who that God would choose to be that God too. But God doesn't work that way. He's revealed himself in this book. And in this book, you have to take everything that he says about himself. Not just bits and pieces, not a little bit here and a little bit there, but all of it. God defines the terms and rightly interpreted, this book tells us everything we need to know about him. And we don't have the buffet option. It comes plated and ready. And you got to eat all your food, even the Brussels sprouts, even the broccoli. Jonah hasn't got that yet. But how about you? How about me? Jonah doesn't want what God wants in this moment. But what are the things in my life, my worldview, my way of thinking, my cultural understanding, my personal lifestyle, my family traditions, and on and on, my politics, on and on the list could go. What are those things that, that keep me from wanting what God wants. Uh, to dig even deeper, to, to, to push in even harder. What are the things in the way that we do Christianity in America? What are the ways that we've traditionally done church that actually convince us that God wants a specific thing that biblically he explicitly does not? Are we willing to authentically ask those questions of ourselves and of our families and of our churches? Jonah wasn't ready to answer that question or even have that conversation. Verse 4, God comes to him, though, and the Lord says, Do you do well to be angry? This is a merciful response from God. In what's not there. 
He doesn't come and, and do what I want to do and grab Jonah by the face and say, you idiot. He doesn't. He invites conversation. He invites contemplation. He invites prayer. He invites further understanding. It's a pointed question. It's not a soft question. It's not a joke question. It's not a just sweet Jonah's uh, uh, sin under the rug question. But it's not a hostile, angry question. It's a loving question. Do you do well to be angry? You see, Jonah didn't want what God wants, but God comes to him mercifully. God knows Jonah's heart. God knows your heart. God knows my heart. And he comes to us graciously, even in our failure to understand and our failure to go after the things that he wants. But as we go into verses 5 and 6, you have to understand that Jonah has not by no means uh, just descended into neutrality here. It's not like he doesn't want what God wants because he just doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't want what God wants because he wants something else. Very few of us descend into neutrality, by the way. If you've ever been on a road trip with someone, right, and, and you're getting off the exit and it's time to get some food, and you say to them, hey, where should we stop? And, and they say, I don't care. And then you say, well, let's go to Taco Bell. Well, I don't like Taco Bell. Well, let's go to Wendy's. Eh, I just don't like their French fries. Uh, well, what about uh, Sheets? They've got an expansive menu and... Uh, just kidding, don't ever do that on a road trip. No, I don't like sheets. And all that's left is Chick-fil-A, so you say, well, Chick-fil-A, yeah, sure. Well, that's my, let's, let's eat there, that's my favorite. Well, why didn't we say that from the beginning, right? Like, you wanted that, but you feigned neutrality. There's no neutrality. When we don't want what God wants, it is almost always because we want something else, and, and Jonah desires something. In verses 5 through 6, we see that Jonah desires lesser things. Instead of greater things, Jonah wants lesser things. Verses 5 through 6, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He wants a, a remake of Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, if you're familiar with that story. He wants fire to rain down from heaven and destroy this city. What Jonah desires. So to wait to see what will become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Just like he'd appointed a whale, or a fish by the way. He appoints a plant. And made it come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head. To save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Because of the plant. Simha Sima. Okay? That sounds like I'm speaking in tongues. Simha Sima. Exceedingly glad. It carries with it this idea. This is the Hebrew. It carries with it this idea of being over and above a normal amount of happiness. He is jacked out of his mind about this plant. And this reveals something. You see, he had he wanted front row seats to Nineveh's destruction. And if he wasn't going to see that, he at least wanted some shade and some comfort. And God gives him shade and he is exceedingly joyful. Jonah has exchanged a love for greater things for a love for lesser things. God says salvation for the nations, right? I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham. 
And you're going to get to be a part of it, Jonah. I will use you of all the people in the world right now, living and breathing, I've chosen you to be a part of seeing this promise to Abraham fulfilled. Seeing salvation come to the nations. Jonah says, no, I'll, I'll take some shade. I'd rather a shade. Give me shade. It's almost comical, right, if, if it wasn't so much like me. C.S. Lewis does a great job of summing this up. It's a fairly famous quote. It's, in my opinion, it doesn't get old. It's from the weight of glory. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's not that we desire more than what he has for us. It's that we desire less than what he has for us. Our expectations aren't too great. They're too faint. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, and so we make the exchange over and over and over again, taking lesser things and giving away greater things because we don't understand the truth. When your desires align with God desire, God's desires, you will never be disappointed. Now, what I did not say, okay, before you go tweeting that and, and getting all the pushback, what I didn't say is you won't have pain. You'll have pain. What I didn't say is that you won't have to wait or that you won't yearn for something even though in God's timing it hasn't come yet. I didn't say you won't feel like giving up. I didn't say that you won't struggle. But I'm speaking in an ultimate sense. That in the end, there is only one way to guarantee that you will not be disappointed. And that is for your desires to align with God's desires. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. God will get his desires every single day. Time. If he has to send a storm, if he has to send a fish, he will get what he desires every single time. And for the children of God, the promise is this. That works out for your good. While at the same time working out for his glory. And because God will get what God wants and what God wants will be for the good of his children, then the only way to guarantee ultimately that you are not disappointed is to be in step with what God wants. But we're far too easily pleased with lesser things. So what are the lesser things in my life? What are the lesser things in, in your life? What are you hoping in? What lesser things are you far too easily pleased with? Security, safety, wealth, relationships. I can't apply it. The Holy Ghost has to apply it to your life individually. And I pray that he will. But notice what I said. We're far too easily pleased I mean that on the front end. Because what happens is for us is the same thing that happens with Jonah. Eventually, lesser things prove to be just that. Lesser things. 
That's what happens for Jonah. In verses 7 through 9, we see when lesser things prove to be lesser things. In verse 7, uh, or, yeah, so in verse 7, but when dawn came up, uh, came up, the next day God appointed a worm. So he's appointed a fish, a plant, a worm. All we ever talk about is the fish, by the way. I'm going to start a petition for equal representation in, uh, in storybook Bibles from here on out. I want the worm to get his press, too, and even the plant. And that worm attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to live or for me to die than to live. Jonah put his hope in lesser things, and now the lesser things have been extinguished. Again, it'd be comical if it wasn't so much like me. Jonah had fixed his eyes on ethnic supremacy. He had, and it didn't come. God saved the Ninevites. And he left him wanting more, or wanting less, and not getting less. And therefore he's dejected. And so then he turns his attention to wanting comfort, shade. And God blows that up too. We all cry out to Jonah, turn to God. You want the wrong things. You want lesser things. But he doesn't. He fixes his hope on shade, on comfort. One of the most underappreciated manifestations of God's relentless mercy is when he reaches into our lives and he takes away, rips away the things that we love more than him. It's underappreciated because it stings when it happens. It's not fun when it happens, but it's mercy when it happens. In early college, uh, I had a girlfriend and I had a, uh, a desire to become a photographer, and I had invested myself in both of these things very deeply. I was saving money for an engagement ring, and I had this project to end all projects that I was doing in school with these old historic cameras. One was like an Ansel Adams style. That means nothing to some of you camera. It was beautiful. And within a span of about six to eight weeks, God took both things away from me. My girlfriend dumped me. I'm glad she did. Huh? Hit the lottery, hit the jackpot. Second time around. But in the moment, I was wrecked. And then one night I got home late from a football game. I had all my gear in the car. I went inside, I slept. I woke back up. The window was broken in my car and all my photography gear was gone. Earmuffs, but I stood in the driveway and I raised my middle finger to the Lord. And I cursed him because he took my lesser things away from me. My hope was in lesser things. That was one of the most gracious things that God has ever done to me was to take those things away. When your desires do not align with God's desires, you will always be disappointed. What I didn't say was that you won't find temporary joy in lesser things. You will. I promise you will. 
Maybe not all of them, but there's some out there that will provide some temporary joy for you. I'm not saying you won't find some, some relief of your stress or you, or you won't find some of the things that you want in lesser things. But what I am saying is that ultimately, nothing in this world can satisfy you. But Jesus, enter by the narrow gate, Matthew seven thirteen through 14. This is God saying, uh, go after greater things. Even though it's more difficult sometimes to, to go after greater things, go after greater things, not lesser things. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to lesser things, that leads to disappointment, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to greater things. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. So as the story is closing out, we find Jonah where we so often find ourselves, not wanting what God wants. Instead, desiring lesser things. And he's even finding out in real time, time and time and time again, that the lesser things that he desires are going to disappoint him and not bring joy. And yet he keeps going that way, and God comes to him one Last time, graciously and lovingly, and he says, do you do well to be angry? Talk to me, Jonah. Let's talk this through, right? And we all root for Jonah to to respond and say, you're right, God. How foolish of me. But you've been so gracious to me, so kind to me, so loving to me. I'm sorry. And to turn, but he doesn't. He says, yes. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. That's it for Jonah. And that's sad. And that's me. If you're willing to admit it, that's sometimes you. We're Jonah in this story. Jonah digs in his heels. But there's good news in the final two verses. God's relentless mercy carries on invincibly. And the Lord said... You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. You want stuff that's temporal, that's here today, gone tomorrow. And you feel pity in your heart right now, Jonah. You're having a pity party. You should understand why I feel the way I feel. Should I not pity Nineveh, verse 11, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle. God's doing two things here. He's extending mercy one more time to Jonah by teaching him, by trying to help him see and understand the truth. And he's also celebrating the beauty of his own mercy that he has poured out on Nineveh. Patiently conversing with Jonah, not blowing up at him in response, but still speaking pointed truth to him, right? Lovingly. This is our God. Don't miss this, right? God doesn't bring a club and beat us with truth. But God doesn't come soft and and, uh, uh, wishy-washy either. He comes with truth and love together. And so he says that, to, to Jonah, he says, uh, you're having a pity party, you get the concept, but know this, people, image bearers, are worth more than plants. You're sad about the plant, but you're missing the fact that all of these people have been saved. And then he proclaims the beauty of his mercy to Nineveh. So Jonah, your pity is misplaced, it's, it's weak, it's for something that can't last. 
plants die. So does, so does uh, supremacy of, of ethnic identity. Those things will die. They will all die. They have a, they have a shelf life. But souls don't. God's pity is for everlasting souls and for their generations. That right hand, left hand thing. Some people say that that's referring to children who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Some people say that it's referring to uh, the inability of, of many of the people in Nineveh to know right from wrong. Regardless, it's people. Image bearers of God. And that statement about the cattle is about their livelihood. It's about the fact that they have a livelihood there in their community. And God feels pity for the image bearers of God. In the situation they find themselves in. You see, God's passion is for the salvation of every tribe and tongue and nation, and salvation belongs to the Lord, and I'm so thankful that it does. Because if salvation belonged to Jonah, we wouldn't have Revelation 7, 9, and 10. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And because salvation belongs to the Lord, the prophet John, or the, the apostle John, in a moment of uh, being raptured up into seeing the future, writes of what he sees. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, including Nineveh, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb I've practiced this sermon twice I've wept both times this passage oh man I love it so much hope you want strength for today you need bright hope for tomorrow and for me a lot of any few moments in my life that I've had of strength or courage have been rooted in the this passage, this hope, that God's going to keep his promises, and those promises include me. This is the last we see of Jonah in the Bible. He gets cited later by Jesus, but we don't get any more information about his life. That's it. It's the last time we see him. But man, I have hope that it won't be the last time we see him. I don't know the internal destination of I don't know the eternal destination of Mo, of Jonah. I can't I can't know that for sure. I can't I can't say with any certainty, but I heard the way he prayed in the fish. And better yet, I know the relentless mercy of God. So imagine with me that scene in Revelation 7 as we close. You see Jonah there? Arms linked with an Assyrian soldier from Nineveh. Can you see that? As you look down the line, you see a thief there too who went right up to the very end without repenting until he hung on the cross next to Jesus. And God saved him. Rahab's there. She was a prostitute. Paul, the killer of Christians, he's there too. Right? All lined up around Jesus. Maybe a former slave is standing there right down the line from a former plantation owner. Can you see it? It's not imagination. It is our future reality. Palestinians holding hands with Jews. 
This isn't kumbaya. This is a mighty God who has made war for the souls of people and has followed through on his promises. And because of it, now we, we, we celebrate together as people. Ugandans, Eskimos, Anglo-Saxon males and, and uh, Hispanic women singing, worshiping together. Literally anyone and everyone who's repented of their sins, no matter how dark or scandalous, and placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross will be there. There's a handful of people in my life right now, and I feel towards them like Jonah felt towards the Ninevites. There's a good chance they're going to be there too. They'll be abusers and victims. They'll be criminals and hometown heroes. And then there'll be me. Even though this week I neglected the word of God. Even though this week I acted apathetically towards my wife and responded with impatience towards my children. Even though this week I neglected to pray for you as your pastor. I'll be there. And all of us, right? Ninevites, Jonah, everyone, rich, poor, famous, forgotten, we're all going to, right, as the angel band kind of cranks it up to 11, then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, that's your cue. That'll be you, child of God. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. That's the future. That's the happy ending to the book of Jonah, even though we don't read it in Jonah. And that's the happy ending for every single child of God because the better Jonah, Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin for the Ninevites, would become sin for Jonah, would become sin for me, would become sin for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, Jesus, or he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In layman's terms, I call that sinners or winners. In theological terms, it's called penal substitutionary atonement and double imputation. Sinners are winners. Those who find their victory in Christ will be winners. Because the penalty for sin was death and separation from God, but Jesus, the substitute, took that punishment on our behalf and in doing so brought atonement to all who would believe in the finished work of Jesus. Penalty, substitution, atonement, and the imputation of God's righteousness is ours because the imputation of our sin was his. Double imputation. Sinners are winners. 
And that's grace through Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus today. He did all of the work. He cried out, it is finished on the cross. And he has made it possible for you today to become a child of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And child of God, simple application. A suggestion for this week. Get out some paper and make two lists. Be honest on the first one. Write all those lesser things in your life that tempt you to love them more than you love God. To tempt you to to not want what God wants, but instead to desire lesser things. Be honest. Write them down. And on the other side, write a list of all the reasons that you can think of. It could be an infinite list, so you have to stop at some point. Of the reasons that God is worthy of honor and glory and praise and worthy of your very life. Repent of the things on the left and lay hold of the things on the right. Things about God. And maybe at the top of the list you could write this one. Even when we forsake greater things, God is worthy of worship because even when we forsake greater things and love lesser things, the relentless mercy of God carries on invincibly. And Jesus proved that on the cross. Father, we're done with the book of Jonah, but the story of your relentless mercy carries on. Thank you so inadequate for making me a part of it, for making us a part of that story of your relentless mercy. This week, may we do, by your grace and in your strength, that hard work of of owning up to the things that we're tempted to love more than you and fill our hearts with love for you. That the command to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength will become a natural instinct for us because you have graciously poured out upon us the strength and power to do it. May that be true of us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.